I want to tackle a, a subject today, uh, well we've been in this series, uh, this series about rediscovering and defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been in this series uh, all through August and uh, so we're going to continue this. We've had a couple weeks break, but uh, I want to uh, talk to you today about that your salvation it just isn't all about you. And a lot of times we, when we're first saved, when we first become Christians, that's what we think of. Of course, that's, that's normal. Uh, it's such a big thing that happens to us of Jesus forgiving us of our sins and transforming our lives. You know, it's just, uh, we're just consumed with it. We're just, cons- at least I was. I remember I just consumed with, with, with Jesus Christ. Uh, he just, I was so grateful that he forgave me that he changed the direction of my life. I really, even at age 14, I understood at least these, these simple things that I was no longer going to hell, but I had this promise. I was, I was right with God and I, I, I felt it and I knew it from God's word and I knew it from the things I'd been taught as a boy about uh, God's, about the salvation in, in Jesus Christ. And of course, um, I was just all consumed with that and uh, as I got older, and I, well, I've learned that that has a lot more to do than just me, that our lives are to be an influence. Our lives are to actually impact others, or God wants to use us in a way to touch other people. And so we want to talk about that today in the aspect of rediscovering the power of the resurrection. Amen. Um, Let's go ahead and look at the scripture today, and you're going to think it's kind of strange, that probably that we're looking at this particular topic, but I think you'll see how, why the Lord is leading us this direction as we tackle this subject of your salvation isn't just all about you. It's, uh, it's the account of Jesus when he went to Tyre and Sidon. Let's go ahead and read it. And it's, uh, it's the, uh, as Jesus is ministering to the Canaanite woman, the Gentile woman, the pagan woman, uh, who had a daughter who was severely demon-possessed. So then Jesus went out, Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan, came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So she knew something about Jesus, didn't she? She knew something of him, even though she was a pagan. My daughter is severely demon possessed. But he answered her not a word. Isn't that odd? And his disciples came and and urged him saying, send her away for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and worshipped him. (laughs) And that's something. Saying, Lord, help me. There was a desperate situation, a desperate, a desperateness in her voice. But he answered and said, and it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet... Even the little dogs eat the crumbs from which, from, uh, that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Unusual story, unusual account, I should say, of Jesus' uh, interaction with this woman. Lord, help us to see what you're saying today. Would you pray with me? Father, um, you have made us to be daily individuals. 
Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And just as you want us to learn to depend upon you for our daily physical needs of strength and health, oh God, so remind us today that our spiritual needs require daily attention and strength too. Father, as someone once said that you are like the sun. We can't look at it, but without it we can't see anything else. So Lord, shine the warmth of your goodness, we pray, on, on us and help us to be refreshed in your truth and all that you have provided for us through your Son, Jesus. It's in his name we ask it for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for looking at the Word today as we try to examine that and see what the Lord has to say to us. We've had a couple of Sundays away from our focus on the resurrection of Jesus and I thought it would be good for us just to briefly review what we've covered so far and this will just be brief but first we began this series with the goal of rediscovering and also defending the resurrection of Jesus because a lot of times when we think of the gospel we don't think of the resurrection we just think merely of the cross and we'll look at that here again in just a minute but that's when we, we began thinking about this just re rediscovering it and seeing the necessity of it and we began understanding it this way that that it was uh, it's the cutting edge the resurrection is at the cutting edge of our salvation that it's important that we understand it and that I mean that it takes a bigger place in our life than probably what most Christians understand today the importance of the empty tomb is at the cutting edge of our salvation um, providing us the hope of a new glorious eternal spiritual body C.S. Lewis you remember he he wrote he wrote this I we talked about this in the earliest days of Christianity an apostle was first and foremost a man who claimed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection to preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection we saw too that the resurrection is a uh, it's a central it's a central pillar of our redemption. And when you look in the Bible at at words, whenever the Bible talks about redemption, most of the time redemption deals with a transformation of this physical body. Salvation deals with it's kind of a big term that covers all of that, but uh, covers uh, the forgiveness of our sins within the transformation of our souls but redemption has a, to do it, it, it deals with the transformation of our souls too but more even so it deals with the promise we have of being fully redeemed fully transformed when Jesus comes back that the, the salvation he provided for us will be seen fully then as we're made perfect as we're transformed our minds are made perfect and we're, our bodies are, are, are made into be a glorious body just like Jesus has the two, uh, the two sacraments remember that emphasize these two pillars of our salvation you know the cross we celebrate the Lord's Supper you know that emphasizes the cross right emphasizes the, the sacrifice of Jesus but then we also the other sacrament is what it's baptism isn't it and baptism represents the resurrection that when uh, when you're down under the water that's representing your death uh, to the world to your sins and then when you come up out of the water you know it not only, it re not only represents you being able to continue living getting a breath but it, it means that it represents the resurrection power of Christ raising you to new life your life has changed uh, the old is gone so to speak the, the, you once were blind but now you can see you once were dead but now you're alive and so 
we have these two sacraments that remind us all the time of the cross and also the empty tomb. Amen. Um, we also looked at this here. We looked at the, the three-leggedness of the gospel. You know, my, my sons are here today, of course, and uh, this, uh, they can tell you this. They can, you can ask them. They'll tell you that uh, they, I don't remember having to teach the girls about this, but I had to teach the boys about this, that when they would sit in the chairs around the dining room table or the kitchen table, uh, they would always, well, they would tended to be just like me. I, I taught them what, I, what my dad taught me, that you're not allowed to sit on one or two legs because it weakens the chair. You know, they'd lean back on the two legs or the one leg balancing, you know, and say you're allowed to sit only on four. And if you're on a stool, on three. But never just one or two. And in a similar way, the gospel is the same. The Holy Spirit is limited to convict if we don't use the full gospel like the apostles did. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And that gospel must consist of the cross which is, you know, which is the, is the doorway. That's the doorway to God's glory, you know, the Bible says. And also has to consist of uh, the empty tomb. That's the second leg. But then there's that third leg that we don't know very much about. We don't even talk about it very much. But the apostles did. They talked about it when they preached the gospel. And that was the wrath of God. The judgment of God. That was the gospel in the New Testament. The reason why for the tomb, I mean the, the cross, the empty tomb, was because that provided you a way to run, to flee from the wrath of God. Amen. From his judgment. And that's why, so we need to, that's what makes the gospel strong, is those three legs. And we focused on that one Sunday, didn't we, on this, the importance of the judgment or the second coming of Christ, the, that wrath of God. Uh, people must eventually come to terms with believing all three of those to experience forgiveness, to experience cleansing, and also redemption, of course. We also took a look at the, uh, the, the importance of a firm foundation, uh, that the resurrection provides this firm foundation in our faith. We don't necessarily have to be scholarly apologists, you know, to defend the gospel, but we need to learn why we know the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. You know, I had to face this in my life, and you, every Christian needs to know why do you believe it is true? And why other, all other religions that claim to be true are merely satanic substitutes, you know, of, of, of a twisted version of what's good. Um, that is not only evil, but it winds up deceiving people and leading them to eternal death. You need to know why you believe Jesus is the only way to God. We need to see that, uh, you know, that, again, that truth matters. That truth is necessary. It has to be held on to. It has to be clung to it has to be defended I hope some of these things are coming back to your memory as we as I just run through them briefly we, uh, we loved ones we have to reject any theology that um, suggests that Christians live in two worlds we do not live in a Christian and secular world for a Christian everything is Christian you take Jesus with you everywhere you go you don't act differently here than you do out in the world, in this place. We don't have a secular world as, as God's people, do, do we? No, we act like Christians here, yes, that's easy. But we also act like Christians out there in the world. 
where, quote unquote, it's secular, but we, we take the Lordship of Jesus with us out there, too. Amen. That was, that's what we do. Into our politics, into our, into our money, in, into our business, into everything, into, uh, into our home. We take the Lordship of Jesus into our, in the, into our marriage, into our raising or training our children. Christ must be Lord, you know, and not society. And like Francis Schaeffer says, you know, he has to be Lord, not society, and not the government. <laughs> yeah. We saw also the importance of being convinced here that uh, being fully convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and, and that he did what the Bible informs us he did. Not because just your parents told you that's important. Not because a Sunday school teacher taught you that, that's important. Not because a preacher taught you that, that's important too. Beloved ones, like Paul, we have to be convinced in our own heart that I know that I know that I know. I know who I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep all that I have committed to him. That when I face him on that judgment day, I trust him. I trust him that I have, I have given all that I know to give him. I give him all my life. And so I know who I have believed and that he is able to keep that. Keep it in trust. Keep it. He's able to guard it safely for me against that day. That day of judgment. Our faith shouldn't be growing fainter as we get older. But it should be growing brighter. It should be getting uh, not dimmer, but brighter. Amen. You know, I, I know uh, uh, there have been harder days uh, for, for God's people. And there's been days of terrible hardness, you know, when you've been thrown to lions and, and thrown to, uh, and ter- to, the, to, the, to the gladiators and, and all other kinds of tortures that God's people have gone through. There have been greater days of struggle than what we're facing today. But still, God's people are being oppressed today. We're being oppressed more, more, more and more in our country, more and more in our, in our, in our America. The... Um, the the worldview, the worldview of uh, of our American culture is now more pagan than it is Christian. You you know this. It's uh, didn't used to be this way when I was a boy. It was people still had a more of a biblical concept, and even when my dad was a boy, it was even more more there was more of a biblical worldview that was held. Uh, people, even non Christians, they they still thought. They still understood the Bible. They were trained. They had an understanding of the Bible. They knew right from wrong. That has changed now. The, the Bible is uh, no longer known. And it has to, God is no longer feared in our society. Uh, his authority uh, is mocked and totally disregarded. His, his commands are twisted and miscommunicated. His judgment is not even considered. People stare and study at fossils not knowing that that's to remind them that God judged the world one time with a great flood because of man's wickedness. When we see a fossil, that's what it's supposed to remind us of. It's supposed to remind us that that fossil's there because of the great flood. And that if that reminds us of the great flood, then it reminds us that he also said there's going to become a second judgment, a judgment of fire upon the world. But people don't even think about that anymore. They, uh, the Bible's mocked and profaned. Every time Bill Maher, if you know who he is, every time Bill Maher is, 
as is on his show and those like him they get the opportunity you know on the media just to curse God and to make fun of him and to mock the Bible yes we we're definitely surrounded by a majority of uh, of uh, of a pagan mindset in our in our culture now and now it's even harder because our culture used to be dominated by a biblical mindset and so now that we've kind of cast it aside Talking to Jesus about uh, talking to the culture about Jesus is even more difficult than it probably well than it was when people had no understanding of God at all. So, what a great opportunity we have to shine, right? What a great opportunity we have to shine. You know, this might have been hard before, but now I tell you, there's such a contrast between a Christian lifestyle and this world. The pagan lifestyle, I tell you, we, we have a great opportunity to shine. Um, the second reason that these are unique days of struggle is because of this. The, the um, American church is vacillating. Um, not all the church, but a chunk of it is, a big chunk of it is vacillating. Um, this hits closer to home for us. There are large portions of the church, the body of Christ, which is called to be the light of Christ or a culture in, a, in a, a, a struggle to the devil in America is vacillating. And to vacillate means this. This is what it means to vacillate. It means to waver in your thinking, uh, to be unsteady, indecisive. It means to be doubtful, double-minded, Thinking one way one day and then, th- you know, this is right and wrong, then changing your opinion the next day, you know. Um, I saw a slogan on a liquor store that stated that they would put the wobble back in your walk. Uh, what a statement. I mean, what a goodness gracious. And who would ever think that's a good thing? <laughs> who would ever think that's a good thing? Who would have that up on their store? And then it just, it just blows my mind. Yes, some of you know where that is too. <laughs> But let uh, me tell you, a good portion of the American church now has got a wobble in its thinking. A good portion of us have a wobble in, the, in, in our thinking. Biblical Christian truth and the doctrine has, that has withstood the test of time um, since the day of Pentecost is being challenged and discredited today by Christian universities, uh, um, scholars apparently, quote unquote, and, and changed to fit, listen to this, changed to fit the current tastes of our culture in an effort to make Christianity more appealing. Someone said, you know, it's kind of like turning off the light in order to draw people in from darkness. When we change or compromise God's word, we're turning off the light, thinking that we're going to be drawing people who are already in the dark somehow. <laughs> we're going to be drawing them. Using darkness to lead people out of darkness, and that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And yet that is what sections of the church are doing all the way from uh, fundamental doctrines on creation, on, on, for instance, the creation of two genders, two, two sexes, to the acceptance of the practice of homosexuality, to somehow we're twisting God's love and judging people by telling the truth. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're being, you know, when we tell people the truth, um, you know, we're, we're told that we're not being loving and that we don't know anything about grace. And instead of, uh, well, fearing God, we're fearing what men think of us. 
Now Jesus warned us to fear God and not man. Matthew 10, 28. Once, um, it's, it's true. Um, the body of Christ must learn how to tell people the truth about their sin. That's why our salvation is just not all about us. We have to remember how to inform pagans about their sin. The resurrection, the cross, the understanding of the coming of the judgment of God is so powerful in our lives. It's so transformed us. This is a central thing to our living. It's, it's all about, it's, it's why we exist in this world. That is so, it's such an anchor for us. We have to say, God, you've got us here for a reason. How can I help some pagan learn what or experience what I have? I mean, they're so lost. They're so in darkness. They're so ignorant. How can I help them? How can I help them? A good prayer would be, Father, teach me how to talk to people who have a pagan mindset. That'd be a good prayer to pray. In your daily prayers, Lord, teach me. Teach me how to talk to people who have a pagan mindset. The pagan mindset is tremendously babied today, loved ones. They're babied. Babied and nurtured in self-indulgence. And God's word is like a bucket of ice water on a hot, fun day at the beach. It is. It is. Sin is fun to them. And when you tell them God's word, it's like ice water on a hot, fun day. Uh, I mean, thrown all over you, you know. And I've, uh, I've been accused, like I said, a few times over the years of not knowing God's grace because I preached against sin. That always bewilders me a little bit because it's like trying to shame a doctor because the doctor told you you got cancer. And let me try to tell you how to get, we're going to proceed and we're going to try to conquer that for you. Well, that's what we do when we tell people about their sin. We're trying to show them, you're dying, you're, you're sick, you, you need help. You know, we have to, the you know, gospel, as you well know, is, is, is bad news first because we have to tell people about their, their sin, don't we? The, 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 the pagan mindset the, will oftentimes attack the one who's offering the gospel, the, the good news, because you have to inform them that in some manner they, they have bad news first in their life. You can't assume that they know about their sin. I know Joel Olstein says people already know they're sinners, and so that's why he doesn't preach about sin. He doesn't need to tell so I don't need to tell him because I've heard him sit talk about it on a, in an interview. He says, I don't need to tell people about sin because they already know they're sinners. And I don't think so. I think you assume awful lot there, Pastor Joel. Um, John Wesley uh, would disagree with Joel along with all the other revivalists of the 1800s and 1700s would sharply disagree with Pastor Joel. They believed in order to adequately allow the Holy Spirit opportunity to convict a person of sin, you must inform them about it. <laughs> First of all, you got to tell them. You got to tell them why they need salvation. And there's no ifs, ends, or buts about it. They, they would preach the majority of their message 
on the law. They would expound the law of God, the requirements of God first. And in fact, John Wesley would probably preach about 90% of his sermon about the law. And they said, once you preach about 90% of how people are sinners and how they need God's, then, then you would talk about how they need God's grace and you'd tell them about Jesus and about 10% of your sermon. And then they would be well convinced they need a savior. That was John Wesley and some of the revivalists' method. You know, we see such a sharp contrast between the preaching style, of course, Peter in Acts chapter 2, and also to those well-informed Jews who already had a biblical worldview, and then also the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, who was preaching to pagans who had no idea about God, had no idea about sin. Jesus, you know, Jesus mostly uh, ministered to the lost sheep of Israel didn't he? He mostly did. He did what? 70% of his ministry, we learned last week, around uh, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, um, he mainly ministered to the lost sheep. But he ventured outside that circle to pagans occasionally. And it's very interesting to look at Jesus' style of ministry to pagans. There was occasion, for instance, when he healed a Roman centurion's son who was paralyzed. Remember? And uh, there there was two times where Jesus said, uh, somebody had the greatest faith he had ever seen. One of them was the Roman centurion, the Gentile, the pagan, who said, Jesus, he said, uh, don't come to my house. Uh, I'm not worthy. You just make the command right here and my servant will be made well. And Jesus said, wow, I have not seen such great faith ever. And then the next time he said it was to this woman we read, we read about, this pagan woman. Jesus said, you have great faith. Only time he said that was to two pagans, two Gentiles, that they had great faith. Um, with the Roman centurion, Jesus even broke out in a little little devotional there in Matthew chapter eight about how many Gentiles would be joining in with Abraham in the kingdom of God. But Jesus ministered uh, to the Samaritan woman. You remember at the well? Now she was half Jewish, and and, and so she was kind of like a, if they would say, kind of a mixed breed. So she was kind of half pagan, half half Jewish. But um, in Luke chapter 17, he ministered to the Samaritan man who had lep- leprosy, and he was the only one who came back and said thanks. You remember, he was the, one of the ten uh, lepers that don't only, and he was the only one that came back and said thank you. Um, Jesus crossed the, the Sea of Galilee and into Gentile pagan territory into the Gadarenes in Matthew chapter 8, Mark 5, and Luke 8. Uh, he had met two men there possessed by an extraordinary number of demons. Both men were set free. The pigs didn't fare so well. The pigs were destroyed. You you know the account. But only one man chose to follow Jesus. We're only told that one really said, Lord, I'll follow you. But it's interesting. Jesus returned then across the lake back over into Jewish territory. He'd only gone over there just for those guys, those two pagans, and then back across. I'm sure his disciples thought all that rowing for just one convert. (laughs) We know about the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that? Those were Jewish people. And probably it worked out to be more like 20,000 when you count all the people who were there. But then uh, he... uh, um, Jesus also fed 4,000 Gentiles, 4,000 pagans. He went over across the Sea of Galilee, uh, over there, you know, where the, just down from the Gadarenes there, and uh, he fed 4,000 pagans. 
he was trying to teach his disciples something. It's probably more like 18,000 because they had their wives and children with them also. So there was, uh, he was trying to teach his disciples about that he was the Messiah of the Jews as well as the Gentiles. Hmm. Well, as I want to tell you, we have to uh, um, lovingly, we have to learn to lovingly, um, patiently, um, well, help to nurture people who are under a pagan mindset. We can't expect them just to receive Jesus the first time we talk to them. We have to try to befriend them so that they know that we are their friend. As God gives us opportunity, we must just guide them along in, in the light until they understand. Let's look at this other example, this one example. And uh, as we close today, we're going to look at this lady who Jesus went over to help. Uh, here in Matthew chapter 15. The cities of, uh, Jesus went up to the cities, it says, of Tyre and Sidon. And if you looked on a map, you'd see that you got the Sea of Galilee into the northwest, all the way up to the Mediterranean coastline, were these cities uh, called uh, Tyre and Sidon. And they were, they were Canaanite cities. They were Gentile cities. They weren't Jewish. And, um, and they were located about 50 miles northwest of, the, the, uh, of Galilee, Jesus was amazing. And I can tell you, he takes, sometimes he does things that make you, cause you to have to pray and to ponder and ask God, What's, what lesson are you trying to teach me, Lord? Um, the cities, uh, these cities again were, were, were not Jewish, but Jesus treated every person as an individual. We have to remember that. He treated every person as an individual. He didn't look at the masses and try to just do kind of like mass production uh, on them. He treated people as individuals. In a mass crowd, there was one lady who touched him and was healed. And he didn't even know that she was seeking healing. Well, that's, another, that's another wonderful account, isn't it? But he, he traveled into this pagan territory just for this one particular woman who had a daughter who was demon-possessed. This woman, she, again, she was a Canaanite woman. And actually, when you study the Canaanites, they were enemies of Israel. In the Old Testament, they caused Israel to lose God's blessing. They, they tempted them in all kinds of idolatry and, and immorality. And so these Canaanites were actually the enemies of the nation of Israel um, in the Old Testament. The wickedness of these, this Canaanite culture was Israel's downfall. But this woman had, had heard something of Jesus because she addressed him correctly. You know, she called him, you know, Messiah. The, she was a, a son of David. And strangely, Jesus didn't answer her. It wasn't like him. I mean, he answered other women when they talked to him. And as well as pagan men and women were more precisely. And you want to say, well, what gives with this? And she continued to plead with Jesus. And the disciples finally got fed up with it. And they were, they were just, they didn't want her around. In fact, my guess is they didn't even want to be there. They wanted to get out of that area and get back to home, home plate, you know, home, home ground. And, and um, they, uh, Jesus was, I think, taking this occasion. We're going to see how he took this occasion to develop this woman's faith 
who had a great need and to teach his disciples that he was the Messiah of the Gentiles as well. And you know what? They struggled with that to be sure. We mentioned last week that it was 10 years after Jesus went back to heaven and the church was growing in the city of Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. It took 10 years before Peter finally preached to a Gentile. They really struggled with, with this mentality, of this thing that the Gentiles were to be recipients of the gospel too. Ten years before Peter finally went to preach to Cornelius, you know, that, that Roman officer, and, uh, he, uh, and that, took a tr that took a vision that, you know, for God to give him the vision of that all men, all men are to hear the gospel. So this was a struggle to be sure for the disciples to even be there. And Jesus informed her that he was first of all called to the Jews. For he said salvation to the world does, does it only comes from the Jews. That's a humbling thing to think about Gentiles, isn't it? Isn't that humbling? We're all Gentiles here today. Our salvation wouldn't have, we, none of us could have been able to believe unless it first came to the Jews. Our salvation is from the Jews. Amen. Amen, it is. That's a humbling thing, isn't it? To have to recognize that. That, they, that uh, they came from God's chosen people. Now, of course, we're all God's chosen people now who believe in Jesus. But before we're Christians, we have to realize that. That our salvation comes from the Jews. And that's what he was trying to teach her, too. Remember, Jesus is developing her faith here. And she continued to ask Jesus for help. Jesus seemed to know that this woman needed to a reveal a particular attribute, a particular characteristic that is necessary for great faith in Christ. And for her sake and his disciples' sake, Jesus, uh, you know, without this necessity, without this particular characteristic, you will never experience the wonderful reality of God's power, his grace, and his presence. And what is that characteristic? It's humility. It's a willingness to say, I know. I know what God has done. I know what God says. I know what God's word is. And so therefore, I believe what God says. That's humility. You're agreeing with what God says. And this woman is agreeing with what Jesus says. She knows that salvation is from the Jews. I agree with you, Lord. You're right, you know. And Jesus said, again, what appears to be a little bit cruel, and the reason I put it in the New King James Version because, loved ones, they're the only one, that's the only version that has it right. This translation is only correct in the New King James Version. He says, it seems to be a little bit cruel if you, if you don't understand Jesus' intention behind it, but he said, it is not good to take the children's bread, that is the gift of salvation, and throw it to the little dogs. And it means the word in Greek is not scavenger dogs. It's not like looking down on someone as a dog, like you're just a dog. No, it's, it's more like puppies. It's like little, little puppies inside the house. Your pets. <laughs> that's what the word actually means in Greek. And that's what Jesus was saying. He says it's not good to take the children's gift of salvation and throw it to their, to their puppies, if you will. Now Jesus, again, he didn't call this woman a dog, but in the Greek, he, she, got the, she got the understanding. 
It was a humbling thing for this woman. A humbling thing. She had to recognize that salvation actually came from her enemy. Came from her enemy. And she did humble herself. Yes, Lord. And yet this woman, look at her determination and her humility. But yes, Lord, I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that. But even the little puppies eat the crumbs from what fall from the master's table. Oh, man. I bet Jesus is like, oh, man, that's fantastic. Yeah, you're, you're humble in your heart and you're willing to lower yourself to say that, you know, I'm willing just to eat the crumbs of salvation if that's what it means. <laughs> Jesus, he recognized this woman had arrived. He, had, he stuck with her just like he did with the woman at the well. He hung in there and worked with her and changing that pagan mindset to where she finally understood, you know, how to surrender, how to surrender to him, how to truly believe on God. Isn't that amazing? Yes, Lord, even the little puppies eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. So Jesus recognized again that she had arrived and he told he told again something that he only told one other person, like I said before, during that three and a half years of ministry, that, that, um, that she had great faith, just like the other pagan, the, the Roman centurion, who sought healing for his servant. I want, as I close right now, we have to, we, we have a great knowledge of salvation. All of us do. We have a great knowledge of salvation today. We, we know about the cross. And we, again, we know more about the resurrection. Again, we may not know as much about the coming judgment, but we can learn these things. But we have the potential. We have a great gospel, a great salvation in our life. Do you see that God wants to use you? Do you see he wants to use you and me uh, to engage this pagan culture of ours with the knowledge of the gospel? Not that you're supposed to go out and save hundreds. No, just the folks that God brings across your path. That he gives you opportunity to talk to. To maybe befriend. Yeah, to, to become friends with. And to slowly listen to their lives. And to show compassion and care. And try to help them to understand the way God thinks. Slowly. Sometimes it, it is a slow process. And, to, and you know, to kind of remember here. You know, that your salvation. My salvation. <laughs> You know, it's, it's not just about us, but it's about us working to help others to have it too. There's something God's going to, to direct towards you, I think, to befriend and to help, help them learn about what they really need. Again, it's going to take time, but there's someone who needs your friendship, who needs your help. Would you pray with me? Father, today as we, uh, as we contemplate, Lord, the things you have tried to lay on our hearts, and I pray today that you would help me to just uh, feel the, a deeper, a deeper, Lord, mission of taking more than just myself to heaven. Uh, Lord, I will see that you left me here for a purpose to to also help others, the ones you bring across my, my path, someone who I can befriend, someone I, I can maybe even just say just a few words to that might get them to thinking 
about Jesus or about their need, their spiritual need. Lord, you've left us here in this world as your children to, to not just be saved in ourself, but to, but to, to realize our salvation we're, is meant to be uh, to influence other people around us who are terribly lost, and even more so in our culture today, who they don't have any, any, any even mindset of thinking correct thoughts about God. Father, I pray you'll help us, you'll impact us today. You'll imprint upon our hearts just that, that need to, to be a, a brighter light, to shine bright whenever we can, and to say a word, to not only to, to live the life, but also to talk the life of Jesus to others. Help us, Lord, not to be offensive, but help us to be patient and kind and understanding. If you are able to direct us in such a way that we can say just the right thing to get the attention of somebody who needs you. So we pray that we might uh, take someone, maybe many, many people, to heaven with us in the days that you have left for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.